Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Recorded live. Well, welcome, everybody, to Off-Road Live. John, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Mike. Hey, John, thanks very much for uh, calling in today. Uh, This is Off-Road Live every Monday, 4 p.m. West, 7 East. And uh, we want to get right into the show today. We've got uh, John Stewart, our recreation specialist, and, of course, a special guest uh, later on in the show. Uh, Today, uh, the Baja crew is here. This is your humble host, Monster Mike. And, of course... Our friends, Ram Trucks, Hard Rock, Marlboro, Budweiser, Red Bull, and BajaSafari.com, the king of Baja, and John Stewart, our recreational specialist, is here right now. John, thanks very much for calling in. Um, we heard you had an eventful weekend. Uh, yeah, I uh, spent Saturday up at the Pomona at the Off-Road Expo, and uh, it was a beautiful day there, and I saw a lot of cool-looking Jeeps on display. Yeah, it was uh, a beautiful day in Pomona, California, and thankfully, uh, if you went Saturday, you missed all the rain on Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, and I really didn't check the weather report much beforehand, but I'm sure glad I went Saturday and uh, skipped uh, yesterday. That's right. Well, uh, tell us what you personally saw at Off-Road Expo this last weekend. Well, it, uh, I'd like to draw a comparison first. I was at Spanish Sports Super Show a couple weeks ago and saw a uh, predominantly side-by-side and uh, con- in contrast to the uh, Off-Road Expo, there were predominantly Jeeps, four-wheel drive Jeeps. Uh, and side-by-sides uh, were there, not in the numbers of Sand Sports Super Show, but just enough to remind everybody that the uh, two fastest-growing and the top-selling vehicles in the OHV marketplace are the Jeep and side-by-sides, and that is where the vendors are providing a wealth of uh, aftermarket products, and a lot of those products were on display you know, over the weekend at Off-Road Expo. What was your favorite Jeep? Well, I'm kind of partial to the uh, JK, uh, you know, the four-door Jeep. Is, maybe it's because I have one. And it's just, 
it, it's the little bit longer wheelbase. It rides a little bit more comfortable. You can pack just a little bit more gear in it. Uh, you know, it has a downside. I think the uh, the 3.8 uh, liter motor is a little bit anemic for some things, but it it has good low end torque. Uh, and if you lift it right, put big tires on it, uh, and regear it, uh, you have a great uh, off road trail vehicle. Yeah, they just wanted to make sure that you could pull yourself out of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's not going to win any uh, speed races, and uh, but yet it uh, it will get you places out in the desert that most other vehicles won't go or can't go. Yeah. Well, let, well, let's talk about that just for just a really quick second, uh, John. When when you see a JK uh, out in the field. And then uh, in, in nearby proximity, you see like a, uh, let's say a late model Blazer or a late model uh, Bronco, you know, a Bronco 2 smaller wheelbase. Uh, what uh, challenges are those guys having compared to the, the new product that's on the showroom floors today? Well, the new products on the showroom floor today, you can get a uh, better after, uh, aftermarket performance by suspension lifts and uh ground clearance which is very important now the uh a lot of the broncos are there is a wealth of aftermarket products for them especially the early uh early broncos and the other uh 60 through 70 or 60 what was that first year 65 through uh about 72 uh you know the real early broncos those were uh, and still are a very popular uh, vehicle to build, and you can get excellent performance out of them. Some of the newer Broncos, when they went to a uh, unibody type construction, or you know just solid panels all the way around, but still sitting that setting that on a uh, frame, you uh, it, it was a bigger, boxier, and in some places out in desert areas where you need to have a narrow width, it just was not as good a vehicle. Uh, Chevy Blazer, again, is uh, pretty much the same thing as the, the Chevy's been. Uh, early ones were very good, uh, hampered by the fact that they were big. Uh, this is where the Jeep has captured the market and others in that range uh, of being a uh, smaller utilitarian type vehicle that's easy to modify and it, they just seem to uh, perform real great. They've got a good wheelbase length and an overall body width that gets them through tight and narrow spots that the bigger ones don't. Yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, a ton of aftermarket products. Of course, there's uh, lifts and uh, suspend, uh, there's uh, uh, shock uh, services as well as uh, lots of different tire sizes you could use for all those. What else did you notice at the Off-Road Expo this year? Anything notable? Uh, a lot of the uh, aftermarket bolt-on fenders and underbody work for the, uh, the underbody protection for the Jeep, they're starting to be more uh, the what the aircraft-grade uh, aluminum uh, parts for. Uh, it, and a lot of that is a uh, weight-saving measure. Uh, there was one company I'd have to look up its card now that was had a full underbody protection, uh, uh, undercarriage protection panels, and that that replaced the uh, stock skid plates, and that that whole thing was uh, I think it was 
they said it was, they claimed it was about 85 pounds of weight, and it replaced about the uh, about the same amount of weight as the uh, stock Jeep uh, undercarriage protection. And yet, if you went through a steel construction, you're looking to add a, a couple hundred pounds of uh, weight to the vehicle. So, setting up and gearing uh, and building of vehicles there. It, it, a lot of it seems to be they are gearing towards the expedition marketplace, the touring market, and not the uh, rock crawler hardcore uh, type where you need the, the uh, much stronger uh, metal parts for your protection. So. Yeah, that's that's because I think that they it's it's pretty clear in the uh, numbers uh, out there, the operating vehicles, that there's more grocery getters than there are. Uh, customized uh, rock crawlers. There are, and this is where uh, you know, yeah, you, you can customize something for rock crawling, but by the time you do uh, get it set up, you're uh, limiting the uh, overall value, and that means that you may have to have a, a second vehicle in a family, and uh, you know the family budget may not accommodate that. So, or you end up, uh, or you end up trailering it. Right. Well, yeah. Behind your yeah. Uh, Explorer. Yeah, you could try that, but sometimes when you hit a, uh, oh, say it's about 3,000 pounds for a trailer and uh, 6,000 pounds for a vehicle, uh, you're pushing the weight capacity of uh, a lot of the tow vehicles. Oh, for sure. So uh, uh, how much do you get in the the technical aspects of all these uh, all these rigs, John. Uh, I my my desire, my what I really focus on when I start uh, looking at the jeeps, and that is how can I build it to be number one dependable and number two functional. And that's where I look at all right, what kind of environment am I going to be working and playing in, and uh, then I will try and build for that. Now, in my case, I have uh, I actually have two Jeeps. One of them is a 94 Wrangler, and right now that's modified to the point where I can't do anything more to it and still keep it street legal on the road. And I can crawl along at uh, about a one mile an hour or less, you know, and uh, with 128 to one gear ratio, or I can. Still get that up and cruise along the highways for a couple hours at uh, 65 uh, miles an hour, and so. But that's a Jeep sitting on 35-inch tires, uh, you know, 456 gearing, and you know I've uh, you know, got got dual-range Atlas in it, uh, 4500 transmission that has the uh, the the very desirable 6.3 two to one uh, granny gear low, and uh, so it's it's set up, it's it's complete, it's very good, very functional, and it has the uh, four liter Jeep engine, which is basically a bulletproof engine design. Again, it's not a speed demon bar, you know, you won't win a lot of races with it, but it's just a good, functional, dependable engine. Uh, which rig do you use for your uh, long-range, heavy-duty off-road events? Well, if it's going to be uh, the narrow or something like the narrow canyons and notches and a lot of that uh, out here in the desert, I uh, 
I prefer the uh, Wrangler because it is just uh, more of a point-and-go, and because the shorter wheelbase, it is uh, much uh, it was nimbler in some of the uh, tight turns and some, that you'll find out in some of these desert washes. Uh, but now for long distance touring type, uh, you know, off-roading there where I know I've got to pack a lot of gear and spend, uh, you know, s- several nights out on the trail, that's where my uh, JK comes in handy because, you know, again, sitting on, you know, 35s, uh, re-geared uh, with a 4 to 1 uh, transfer case. So I've got, I've got the low range capability there, a little bit longer wheelbase, a lot more comfortable ride. And I can pack just a little bit more gear in it for the uh, extended overnight trips. Gotcha. So when you go to these shows, you're just not looking for yourself. You're looking uh, uh, for what the future is holding in uh, uh, off-road recreation. Right. I I look and uh, and say, all right, what are the uh, products the vendors are offering and what is changing in the marketplace with the products they're offering is what has been in the past and what is new coming on the market. And one of the things I, you know, again, a lot of the parts for the Jeeps, uh, they they weren't radically changed. And I got, talked to a couple of vendors, and there's some, uh, you know, there's a feeling of excitement about amongst the vendors that they are kind of looking to see what Chrysler comes out with the uh jeep pickup style and bringing back what uh, used to be called the scrambler which is expected to hit the uh, showroom floors within the next year and once that product hits uh, i think you'll see a flurry of activity to uh, ensure that the current products you know like fenders and uh, uh, rock guards and uh, undercarriage protection components will fit or can be easily uh, adapted or changed and designed to fit the uh, expected aftermarket for that vehicle. What kind of an effect is it going to have on the uh, the pickup, the general pickup market? It's not going to hurt the general pickup market at all because you're talking about something that is a eh, quarter ton, half ton capacity. If something is not set for being a tow vehicle, uh, two seats inside, so it's not a family vehicle, but it just has the extra cargo space for a uh, single or a couple to go out and uh, you know spend time on the on the trail. Uh, so it's it's with the convenience factors like that, uh, with that open t- uh, trail bed or open uh, pickup bed type. I think that's where the uh, you find a lot of people will go for that. Uh, just because that extra utility of it, it's, you know, more more carrying capacity for something to be a second vehicle in a family that is, uh, you know, that the regular Jeep Wrangler with the two doors just does not give them that uh, that capacity. So, uh, of these vendors, how many of them knew about the new pickup coming around? Well, they, they, the three the three of them I really talked to, and they all knew about it. Uh, they're looking forward to it. So, you know, it's, I, uh, Chrysler has released their, uh, you know, they've had a couple of press releases out on it, and uh, there have been some prototypes on the market. So it, I, you know, I'm going to be looking to see what's coming up at SEMA and what they're showing and what they're uh, talking about there. Uh, 
as far as the new offerings on from Chrysler. Right, and uh, I can tell you that even the uh, uh, the junker operations throughout Southern California, they're aware that uh, the Jeep pickups coming out too because. Uh, uh, they've been unloading some jeeps that uh, may hang around if once the pickup comes out. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, it, it, it's always a uh, cool factor. And they'll look at me; I'm first on the market or first on the street to have this new vehicle. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of looking at it from that respect. Uh, I, I think it it will be an uh, I look for it to be an instant hit. And uh, yeah. It's, it's just something that a lot of people have lamented the uh, uh, loss of the scrambler of the Jeep lineup here a number of years back, and they've always wanted to have a pickup-type uh, uh, vehicle back in the lineup. And I, like I said, my opinion and my feelings is that it's going to be a big hit when it gets, it's, when it does hit the market. Right. Anything else from Off-Road Expo, John? Uh no that was uh that was about it uh and the uh Sierra del Sol was there uh promoting their uh 54th trail uh desert safari coming up and uh with the information that new venue uh new trails and they have essentially looking at a uh potentially a 15 year run in that spot because of they went through the expense of getting uh some permit options and setups. So, if they're private landowner, if they can hold that agreement together, uh, it'll be a uh, good venue. Uh, that some of the trails that they've been talking about, uh, they're very excited because they offer a lot of uh, challenging opportunities, and it'll be uh, completely different from what Safari has been in the past. How close uh, is the new venue uh, to the uh, date farms? Uh, it is south of the date farms, probably, well, it's just right, you know, right there at Johnson's Landing. They, uh, they're they using that campground, mm-hmm. uh, an area for the uh, a lot of camping operations, and they have a uh, piece of private land right out there that uh, they will set up their vendor's row, and they're, they're uh, planning on having their fireworks display, which will right there at the uh, shoreline of the Salton Sea. Uh, and they, uh, and this year as in years past, they really are not expecting to have to contend with or worry about wind issues because a lot of the wind, uh, kind of drops and dies down by the time it hits the Salton Sea. So Uh, from there, from the camping area and that there's right access up into the, uh, uh, the private lands they've had and you have the, uh, Red Earth Casino there that's, uh, all kinds of food and opportunities, so it's uh, it looks like it will be a very good site for uh, for them, and you know it's, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out this year. Yeah, uh, very interesting, and of course I know that we have a, a further note to talk about having to do with that, and, and we'll do that later in the show. Um, let's move on, John. Uh, let's talk about. Uh, uh, land use issues. What land use issue is uh, top of mind this morning? Well, top of my mind, and uh, this is, is the uh, Bureau of Land Management has finally released their uh, notice for reopening the comment period of this WEMO, this Western Mojave Routes of Travel Analysis. And 
where we within the community thought that was all done, put to bed, and we're going to get a very favorable decision. All of a sudden, it's uh, now reopened for comment, 120-day comment period, which is the first time around. It was only a 60-day comment period. Now, what we, uh, several of us have been discussing it and what and uh, strategy for addressing this and what we see is that right now we we think we're watching a train wreck in process. Now, by that I mean we also have the Desert Renewable Energy Program, the uh, DRECP, coming out. Now, in the past, with this WEMO travel management, with its record of decision, it would have designated uh, OHV routes throughout the desert region. And now with the... Uh, and with when the DRECP was written up, it would it is grandfathering in all of the designated routes. With the delay on the uh, WEMO, that reduces the inventory of designated routes in the uh, Western Mojave region. Now the Western Mojave region is roughly from Barstow to just south of Ridgecrest, and from and again from Barstow east to. Uh, almost to needles so it's a it's the largest district in the desert region and it covers uh, and the area it covers is uh very popular for uh you know the dirt bike and atv and there's also a lot of four-wheel drive activity in the in the region so we're looking there when drecp comes in is it will have a reduced route network Plus, it has uh, land disturbance caps within it. And from what we're looking at is we believe these land disturbance caps will actually reduce the amount of trail maintenance that can be accomplished on the existing routes of travel system. And aside from setting up special special management areas for wildlife, we're not real comfortable with the way the situation is looking. We see that uh, with the RECP being finished up and signed out first, uh, it just may hurt some of the recreation opportunities for the future. So, again, it's a it's something we're trying to balance it, look at both sides and or both issues and see what kind of sense and what kind of uh, route system we can salvage out of the, the two programs. And one other big thing coming up is Senator Feinstein has her wilderness proposal, and Representative Paul Kirk, out of the uh, who covers a lot of that area uh, around Barstow and East, uh, has also submitted in the House a similar bill that covers a lot of the aspects. But there's enough differences to uh, it's going to be uh, interesting how everything plays out and how it moves forward. Is this uh, now? When you say a train wreck, is this going to be now administratively? I can see what's going on with the BLM uh, being a train wreck. But do you see that the uh, uh, the public side, where uh, these representatives are getting involved, do you see that more as competition between the the, those two those uh, law writers? Well, right now I see that as uh, the between the Wemo routes of 
management routes of travel uh, and the DRECP, that's a train wreck in process. And now adding this legislative component on top of it, you have a third train coming into the existing in-process collision. So, uh, and already, uh, I was just reading a little bit earlier this, this morning where uh, Feinstein's bill is scheduled for a hearing in the Senate Resources Committee. And uh, she's already, or her bill has already been uh, uh, criticized for pulling 900 some odd thousand acres out of contention for renewable energy development, and those people are saying, "Well, this is, isn't this kind of hypocritical? Is it obviously on one hand you're supporting renewable energy and yet you're taking land out of it, and you almost a well, not in my backyard, and this kind of you're now forcing the development to go somewhere else." So. You know, it, it's uh, the political posturing is just beginning. Yeah, and uh, let's get. Uh, and I wanted to get to that. Well, Wolf, there's also a, a third item I'd like to get to, but let's not talk about that yet. Let's get back to the train wreck. Why would the BLM do this? Because a couple of us have, and our our opinion is that BLM and the recreation community actually forced BLM into acknowledging that they had more routes on the ground than their uh, maps indicated. Oh, yeah. That that uh, acknowledgement uh, produced, I think it was another three to 4,000 miles worth of routes on the ground. <laughs> so these uh... And... Uh, looked at and been said that, all right, these are not going to affect wildlife issues. In some places they did, but, you know, it was a, it was a significant increase. And what we're, what, what we believe is a, uh, that the environmental community has pushed to have, have the comment period reopened just so they can add some more comments and from their, their perspective and also just to delay the, the WEMO because it would have, you know, like I said earlier, it would have brought into this a rather lengthy inventory of existing uh, routes into the DRECP. And uh, the environmental community is even fighting the DRECP, but uh, yeah, with as many stumbling blocks as they can throw at it. So, Well, and let me, let's uh, uh, just for, uh, perspective's sake, uh, we need to acknowledge that at the mid-levels of uh, BLM that there's uh, uh, lots of environmental uh, folks who uh, have environmental degrees, quote-unquote, within the, the, the department, and uh, thusly giving uh, that side 120 extra days to comment on this after it's already been commented on. Right. And then to and then to double the time that the off road community had to comment on it. Yeah, and the uh, yeah, and we know that it, it's not so much the the local people that there are certain adversaries that we face in in some of the local offices, but in large part, sometimes we do have a lot of friends there, and we do have quite a bit of support. 
And I've had conversations with uh, some uh, contacts in the uh, BLM state office. And I know that we have some support there. Uh, But the message I'm getting back is whether the local level or whether the state level uh, for BLM is they are being driven by uh, political posturing out of Washington, D.C., and they're being driven by a political agenda. And right now that political agenda says renewable energy is going to be the number one planning issue and the number one thing that BLM will uh, be designating uh, places for on public lands. Uh, That's dangerous. Oh, yeah. That's that's dangerous, especially when you start looking at the uh, history of the renewable energy projects, and they really cannot exist or be, uh, and that without the uh, massive assistance of uh, taxpayer subsidies on them. Uh, there is, there are one or two uh, projects that are being implemented fully on private lands, but those are uh, limited in nature and scope. But the majority of it, if it's going to feed into the, uh, the massive uh, public grid, you know, the power grid system, uh, those all have uh, tax breaks and subsidies that come right out of the taxpayer's pocket. Does that give them priority to use public land? Every everybody has a uh, on public lands. People have a have an opportunity to submit a proposal for its development whether it be for a mining or for uh, you know, some kind of a uh, energy project, as long as it is in the, uh, for the overall good of the public. Uh, you can't just submit a permit and say, okay, I want to go out here and build a private home. No, that's, that's not possible. But for development, uh, it used to be mining was uh, predominant and a lot of uh, mining operations were spun up on public lands, especially within the, the BLM. Uh, that was followed in, around there so with grazing is also big. But lately, the energy component has come up, and it is driving a political agenda, which is uh, killing off or you know, putting the uh, kibosh on mining and grazing opportunities because the energy is getting the political preferences. Right, and clearly over uh, uh, off-road recreation. Uh, Let's just take one more step, and then we'll talk about our our third uh, uh, topic, if you don't mind. Um, uh, Having to do with um, uh, these energy projects, I know that, uh, 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 like, battery production is included in these energy, energy you know these energy proposals uh that that battery projects uh you know say like with tesla uh are um priorities with the federal government in uh getting uh loans and grants and you know they want the stuff uh, activated and up up and going um in one of our last conversations you were mentioning that um 
battery production is going to have uh, some issues you mentioned with um, uh, waste. Uh, well, how how much have you followed that topic? I have I have uh, been looking at a lot of different aspects of the uh, renewable energy projects, whether it be the uh, windmill. You know, the wind farm setups or the solar farm setups, mm-hmm. and and the something that tags on to that is there now has to be a uh, a way to either keep a uh, energy production up in in a point where all right take solar uh, there you have nighttime when uh, they have yet to be a perfect, uh, efficient generation of solar from either starlight or moonlight, or on uh, you know, under cloudy skies. And then on the wind turbine side, you have the inability to uh, generate power when uh, the wind isn't blowing. So these two points here are generally what's built along with the solar production sits or the or wind farm production system. They have a uh, backup generating capacity. In other words, they have a backup gas-fired, normally a gas-fired generator that when the wind stops blowing, they fire up the generator and start producing the power that the uh, wind would have produced. And the same with the uh, uh, with the inter- uh, solar farms is that they have backup uh, gas-powered uh, generators that will pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a third concept that comes in on this bit is normally with electricity, you will flip a light switch, the lights come on. In other words, it is a product that is created and consumed on demand, and you want it instantaneously. Now, if you go look towards other applications of how you're going to uh, use a renewable energy power or something as a replacement for a uh, carbon-based power system, this is where you get into where the battery technology, because batteries are a key component to the electric cars like the Prius and the Leaf. Now, getting that battery technology down to the point where it is uh, not a weight factor, a weight encumbrance issue, and the charge time is long enough to be useful, is going to require some huge advances in technology. Now, now when you look at the physical construct and the components of either the battery technology or the solar panel technology or the wind farm technology, all three of those forms of generation or storage, that all three of those concepts that require natural materials in order to produce the metal for the uh, or fiberglass for the wind farms. Uh, solar panels are generally a, 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 a silicon type base, uh, although there are a lot of other exotic mineral uh, elements within that. So, and then you have the batteries, which again, uh, some of the, you know, you've seen batteries come from the lead acid to the, uh, you know, seal batteries, uh, lithium batteries now, and they're doing wonders with lithium batteries and uh, small components and to run uh, the, you know, fo- 
loans and some other things, but you want to make it, you know, profitable and easy to do in a uh, larger capacity requirement. Now you're starting to get larger amounts of, uh, well, of some element. And in this case, lithium right now is the preferred because of its uh, uh, charge capacity that it has. But then you have other elements that are tossed in there to make it all useful. And it is these elements which now you start looking at some very costly to produce elements. And a lot of them are toxic, you know, list of toxic substance charts. So if you're going to make these, what are you going to do with the manufacturing waste, which has really not been addressed yet? So this is where even in the event of an accident, all of a sudden you have an accident involving uh, uh, electric vehicles and your hazardous waste uh, cleanup crew is, they're not out just mopping up and cleaning up gas and oil. They're out there now trying to contain uh, potential toxic substance from and get them picked up rather than leave them out and ex, you know, exposure to humans. So, Well, John, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being on the show today and your perspective. Uh, our off-road recreation specialist and, of course, land use issues with the uh, Blue Ribbon Coalition and the Cal Four-Wheel. How can folks get a hold of you, John? Uh, very easy through my website at uh, 4x4wire.com or jstewart at mac.com. Uh, email always works great. I'm always monitoring email. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, comments that people have and arguments and differences of opinion because it's it's all, this is all kind of discussion that's necessary in order to uh get things worked out so we can move forward. Absolutely. Uh, John Stewart, our recreation specialist, thank you so much, John. We look forward to having you on our next show next Monday. See you until then. All right, Mike. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.
Off Road Live. Our special guest is up next. are back on Off-Road Live. Our special guest is now with us, Baja Bill Fuentes. How are you, Bill? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? 
Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, the the one thing that it's really, you know, quite obvious that uh, through listening to, you know, what we produced in parts one and two is that, Bill, you've had some some uh, intimate uh, race operations experience with uh, Roger Norman. Yeah, I would say so, um, but not 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 to the extent that I had with uh, you know when I did motorcycles, Kawasaki, Honda, and uh, ATK. Well, well, no, because you were you were a decision maker uh, in those processes with on the bike teams. Oh yeah, I mean with the ATK and then the Class Three team and Temecula Motorsports when I was in the helicopter. Yeah. you know, you always want to go with, to the, uh, the the owner or the you know, producer of all the funds and, and give them a budget and um, be accountable for it. So. Well, and that's the point because uh, in your uh, working with Roger Norman, uh, the 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 ultimate owner of Score, who owns Score now, um, he was the decision maker in that process. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've never really worked for the man. I, I went up to volunteer six weeks one time up in Reno in 2012 and I turned around in three days. Stayed an extra few days to make sure things were okay, but no, I, I've never been a paid employee of Roger Norman. In fact, I've never had Oh. Okay, then uh, then let's let's whittle this down then because uh, so you're oh, in today's part three uh, we're going to talk about the Reno Fireworks 500 and um, I have some ancillary experiences having to do with how that event was set up and ultimately uh, 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 how it affected race organizations in the region. Um, uh, and we'll we'll put those together so we can get some foundation for understanding here. Uh, so, let, so let's whittle this down. You volunteered to go up to work with Roger? Yeah, on May, May 17th, 2012. I mean, I remember certain dates and times as though it's a, a first kiss, a first date, a first uh, day on the job. And on May 17, 2012, I, that's my recollection, is uh, Roger called and he, he said the kindest thing. It was the most charming invitation. He says, uh, Bill, we've been, we've been talking about this, and we can't think of a better uh, person in awkward racing than you to be our honorary flag man for the uh, inaugural Reno Fireworks 500. And I was just, you know, I was bored. And um, I said, well, I, you know, school's off, and uh, I can come up and we see here. And then I, I said, four weeks before the race and two weeks after, would you cover my costs? And by the way, i got to register my car. I can even, you know, register it in Nevada if that's possible or unnecessary. And he said, sure, all of that stuff. And he was going to put me in an apartment. And I'm not whining about it. I'm just glad that it's over. But, you know, he said he was, they had an extra apartment. Uh so I wouldn't have to, you know, sleep in the desert or in a hotel. My God, I, I went up there, and it's like from from the day one, he just kept calling and texting all the time. When are you going to get here? When are you get, you know, it's like I said yesterday. You get to a point where you just say, you know, I can do it when it's economical, you know. But to to think about saying, hey, can I send you some gas money to get you up here? We need you. You know, that's stuff I heard. And that never happened, and I never asked. And um. When I finally got up there, I think it was around June 7th, I said, come on out to the desert. Uh, we're we're still working out here at 8.30 at night. I'd driven all day, and I said, no, I think I'll just go ahead and get a hotel room. That was my first big cost besides gas. 
in, in the El Dorado. And all this kind of stuff just got really weird after a while. Um, and I don't mean to, you know, go into too much detail because it's just really, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the racing that I've seen. Is There's a lot of window dressing, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's a, okay. that's a way of putting it. You know, you don't you don't advertise live feeds, and then uh, you know fans come on where they're they're across the border or anywhere. And you don't you don't do that, and then just say, well, sorry, it's it's not working today. I mean, we've had problems in the airplane for the thousand since whenever. I mean, but that's not Roger Norman's problem. But by God, I, I would think that by now, you know, when I heard in 2013 that that uh, weatherman said. About 9.45 in the morning, he goes, I have no more quarters to feed the machine. I go, wow. Come here, listen to this guy. And sure enough, I mean, um, the Internet, I guess, was down, and, and Bob had to uh, put money in it. I don't know. I, I didn't really talk to him too much about that. But it's, uh, you know, giving out, you know, whether man was giving out the personal numbers for Oscar Ramos and, and Roger Ramos. If you want a status, you call them i did but but bill i gotta tell you something i um you know when i heard that report from friends when i heard it from racers uh you know a couple of days after the event when i was in ensenada it, it was interesting the perspective that the angle that i got from each person each person kind of delivered their own special way of you know mm-hmm. Telling the story, and the way that you just described it is so apropos uh, that uh, you know it's so descriptive uh, because you know Weatherman better than all these people who've talked to me about this. I think I've been around off-road racing a bit longer than a lot of people too, and it's it's not a it's not a sweeping uh, you know um, blanket. Okay, whatever Bill says. No, I just was listening to something extraordinary. On that day, November 15, 2013, I, I'm hearing the weatherman give out the personal phone numbers of the score president and owner and his attorney and saying to everybody, um, call them if you need a status on your vehicle. And well, I, right, because that was after a tirade that he'd reached his limit. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I checked in at 545 that morning from, from my race mile at uh, 521, and a race mile 521 with McCaffrey and Post, and I, I just said, Weatherman's 421, that's my call sign. And he goes, hey, Bill. And I just checked in. I says, here's where I'll be. If you need anything out here, let me know. And, uh, you know, after that, I, about four hours later, I said, hey, guys, come over here. As we were sitting at the pit, I said, come over here and listen to this. Tell me if I'm if I'm crazy. And they said, nope, he's saying it. So, bless his heart, man. Well, let's let's uh, we'll we'll get there too. But let's get back to uh, uh, what you were describing. You're now uh, you're now up in Reno. You're getting your digs set up. Uh, how did that proceed? Well, I didn't get my digs. I uh, I, I got a hotel room the first night. The second night, uh, followed Roger around to go up to his his place, uh, the gated community up there. A very nice home, just very old and kind of you know. Not creepy, just perfect. Everything was perfect. And, uh, you know, he introduced, reintroduced me to a guy named Carlos, and, and I said, hey, you know, we were down at the 2011 race fitting for Roger, and, you know, it just, it was okay the first day, and then uh, there was a little bit of 
pot smoking going on, and uh, well, a whole lot, and it was with the heavy equipment. And I, I'd get a, a different Carlos every time I came up with a water truck. I thought I was up there to, <laughs> to learn how to do the water truck. And now you don't mean now you don't mean literally, but you mean you mean figuratively that every time that you made contact with this individual, he acted different. Yeah, this guy Carlos. Yeah, it was it was a raving. Raging maniac, a raving maniac. You know, one one trip of water, the next one is, hey, I'm sorry about that. You know, it was just it was just the high he was on and and using the heavy equipment. So I don't know about. I think it was like day two. I I call Roger from out out there where we could get cell service, and I said, Roger, I don't want to get Carlos in trouble. And he he butt in right there, he, and I'm going to try and do his voice. There's nothing you can say to me that will get Carlos in trouble. Just like that, a growl. You know, and, and people have heard that. And uh, I don't know whether it's a game. I laughed at it. You know, I, I said, really, Roger, huh? that's that's funny. Um, and, uh, you know, operating heavy equipment, you know, with a, higher than a kite and pissing me off. And then doing the back and forth emotionally, I, I just, uh, you know, at, at the end of one day, I said, Carlos, maybe you maybe you ought to drive this water truck and I'll, and I'll do the heavy equipment. But uh, it was just a. I w- I was just the first thing I asked when we finally got a chance to sit down and talk was how's the paperwork, and um, you know do we have everything in? Are we going to have law enforcement out there? Are we going to have private security? Because it's going to be Fourth of July weekend, so to speak. And um, you know, Roger said that's all taken care of. Okay. So you know, I was anticipating a lot of entries. It was beautiful weather up there. Shame they didn't get more entries, but. The good thing they didn't. It was uh, a very, very tough course. Uh, ripped up tires and and uh, it was it was uh, all on virgin land too. And uh, you know you're supposed to have a permit for that. And I never saw that. And he said it was all taken care of, and that's so be it. But nothing worse than having an injunction put on you. Uh, now how how now how did you become aware that the an injunction uh, was filed? Well, no, I didn't say there was one. I'm just saying you you always part of being a risk manager, which is what I've done for SCORE prior to Roger Norman and HDRA prior to Roger Norman, was to make sure that events don't get canceled. <laughs> it's one thing to promote an event and sell your entries, but what happens if the race is canceled because you didn't get your paperwork in or you didn't have the, all the uh, the requirements that each, whether it's a county. Uh, state or the federal government. If you don't have your uh, your T's crossed and your I's dotted, then you're gonna you're you're facing a, a possible even with them. There was a rally race up in Utah recently that didn't go on because they didn't get their paperwork in. So that's the first thing I always ask: How's our paperwork? And Roger said it was taken care of. But boy, as I I went on there, and uh, it only lasted a couple days. There was one other incident that I'll wait uh, give myself a chance to breathe. It was just so petty I, I just I laughed at that one too so alright well let me let me allow you to get a breath then uh, Bill and yeah. let me describe that before your the proceedings that were happening to you at that very moment uh, I had done an extensive interview with the owner of Vora at the time and uh uh, he had been for a short time working with uh, Roger Norman uh, on a USA 500, or at least he believed that he was. 
they went through the motions of choosing a property, which ultimately became, uh, you know, Roger was going to offer his property. Uh, it also uh, came up that um, uh, Vora was going to uh, uh, be responsible for uh, some of the safety aspects uh, of the event. And I'll never forget this interview because now uh, subsequently the uh, this owner of Vora since sold and is now completely out of the business. But but at the time, uh, this owner of this race sanction said that Roger came into the situation real boldly. He said, hey, I'm going to help you out. We're going to do this USA 500. Uh, let's team up on this. Never did any paperwork or anything like that. That's always a mistake with this person. Uh, you, you have to do paperwork with him because uh, if you don't, he's just going to take advantage of you. And what ultimately happened with this race sanction was that they were promised that they were going to be given a, a USA 500 race with Roger Norman. And about halfway through the planning process where he's, you know, Vora is fully committed, Roger literally disappeared. He uh, stopped talking at all with Vora. He stopped all communications, and that's when it ended. But uh, shortly thereafter, Vora determined that what Roger had actually done was stolen uh, all of their uh, uh, information having to do with the event and was going to use it for his own event, which ultimately became the Reno Fireworks 500. He does that with a lot of people, whether it's the media, whether it's – Tracking. Uh, in 2009, he wanted to know everything about Tracking International, and I couldn't tell him because it was, um, that was, um, was it called the, uh, oh, heck, the confidentiality agreement. Proprietary. About tracking, yeah, proprietary. And uh, I said, well, I can't tell you. I can tell you in general about it. But, you know, he was talking about buying Tracking International that was allied with IRC. And uh, I thought, well, wait a minute, why don't you just be a racer? Okay, and then if you want to go uh, be a promoter, great. But you can't do both. And be a tracking person, but you know you don't you don't tell you know people like that. I guess I mean that's what we're all taught, right? You just don't tell certain people you know, how to do things, kind of like normally, like normal people do. No, because uh, <laughs> they have a plan. They they have a plan in their back pocket of, of what they want to get accomplished, what they want to do, and to you know to try to instruct them on what to do and what not to do is fairly elementary. And uh, uh, that's a that's another great example. We'll get to that. What year was that that he talked to you about uh, Tracking International? 2009. Wow. Yeah. So all the way back then, uh, he wanted to do that. Uh, we just uh, posted a uh, a video up on Baja Racing News from 2009 when uh, Rogers using spot devices for tracking, and he wow. was tracking he was tracking his pre run. And he put a lot of time in for that race. And my guess is that what was occurring was uh, he would go through systems, and if it was if something was valuable, and he felt that it was something usable, he would check out to see how much it would cost him. And then if he determined that uh, he could do it faster, better, cheaper, you know, to Roger Norman, mm-hmm. uh, he would he would do that instead of. Uh, you know, do what just a normal person would be, and that is look at the entirety of what was what was laid out. You know, what 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 actually is the service, what, how it's being really used by racers at the time, 
Because I think that's where a lot of mistakes are being made here is that uh, there's no complete uh, survey or report that's being completed prior to a decision being made. And ultimately what happens is he he gets halfway down uh, midstream through things and decides to go in another direction. And that's happened in a number of races now with SCORE where the racers are told one thing and by the end of the race the rules have changed. Right. No, I, I, I'm fully aware of that, but I, I think it goes beyond just the, the racing as a promoter. You know, he's he's done this. And, you know, I'm insane because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And, you know, um, it's it's like, uh, I don't know, being in, a, in the ring with a gorilla, you know, and the gorilla throws you in the corner and, you know, that would be Roger. He's the big gorilla and he throws you in the corner and he, you know, and then he says, well, no, no, here, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll play fair with you. Come on, come on back. Let's dance some more or play. And, you know, it's just, you know, you get your hopes up and stuff like that. And I think that the biggest thing is that economically or, or financially, you know, I, I put myself in a vulnerable spot beginning in 2010 when I really thought that when offered the, the position, quote, when we get this thing off the ground, you know, that separate series, I was so stupid and insane to actually believe that. Absolutely. Well, all he's trying to do is uh, uh, milk uh, the information, and he's moving forward with whatever plan he has. And it's not the plan that he verbalizes. So there's two lies occurring. There's one lie that he's not telling you the the entire story, and then there's the other lie that he's telling you something that is not true. Well, yeah. Or, you know, and then he couches this. You know, I, I see where, you know, Banging on Roger here. I mean, he's. I got to look at him as a human being who's who's just in over his head. And you know, when I was watching how he built the uh, his his shop, let me let me go back a little bit. You know, I was uh, wholly impressed in 2009 when they had the grand opening. He was there uh, shipping the beams, uh, the white support beams to the roof and stuff. And I was very impressed with his his knowledge of being a, a, a construction in construction. Um, so. When he does things, they turn they they tend to be out you know uh, they turn out better than than uh, than good. They usually turn out great when they turn out. Okay, let me say that again. When Roger Norman does something great, they're great. When they're great, you see, he he has to focus on one thing. And I don't know if he's got. I don't think in 2013 at all he was prepared to be the. Um, promoter of the Baja 1000. That's just a huge, huge race. I couldn't do it. And I'm not saying that, that uh, you know, anybody's better than another, but you got to have a team and people that will critique you uh, for, in my special areas, communications and, and the Spanish, where's the backup and redundancy? So I don't want to get off that, but, you know, he, he he's fascinated with tracking and, and all this new technology. I think we need to put some meat and potatoes back in the off-road racing. Oh, there's there's no question about it, and you're absolutely right pinpointing tracking because that's such a great example. Uh, you know, the only people that stay around him uh, are sponsors that continually pay him money for things. Yeah. If there's money to be had, he will be there. He'll allow them to stay, but anybody else will not be allowed to stay because they be, they ultimately become – uh, knowledgeable to how he does things, and he has to have them go. Uh, yeah, you're, you, you, yeah, you were one of those people because 
you saw things that he doesn't want people to know. And uh, you also, and, and by the way, one of those things is uh, some of the people around him. Uh, there are reasons why uh, certain people are around him for free mm-hmm. and remain to be around him for free. And loyal to a fault sometimes, I would imagine. I don't. Well, they uh, some of those people wouldn't be able to uh, uh, pass a drug test right. with another company. Uh, so that's how, that's how some people remain around uh, people like Roger. Well, let's get back. Uh, we're at the Reno Fireworks 500. Uh, go ahead and continue your story. Well, there was a when I wanted to catch a breath there. Uh, there are moments. They're, they're called the Nor- Norman moments, where you know whether it's getting out of his his race truck or having a fit about something very small like. Three staples must go in the uh, course marking stakes when you attach an arrow. You must have three staples in them. But there was the most incredible experience that I had. I'd have to say it was probably on June 9th of 2012. And uh, I was putting some water on the access road to where the, the Reno 500 was going to be centered, you know, with a, uh, you know, a VIP tent and all the communications and media. And the reason I put just a little bit of water on that is I thought, huh, we can't talk to him. There's no cell communications. We're not using radios for some stupid reason. So I think I'll just put some water on this uh, access road so if a city council person, a county supervisor, somebody from the BLM, so that if they come up in their nice cars, just like that, there's not a lot of dust. And Carlos had a fit about that, but then Roger gets on the phone, and it was so petty. I said, yeah, uh, I'm just putting some water down here on the access road in case you have a, a city council person. And he interrupted and he says, and then the, the other growl was, you sprinkled my water on with my truck? And I laughed again. Who and what do you think you're saying? It's just water. It's not being wasted. It's being placed there as a sign of uh, respect and keeping cars, you know, from getting dusty if they come in from the city. You know, a, a mistake on my part, but not a growl. I don't need a growl from you, pal. I've come a long way, spent a lot of money so far, and I'm sleeping in the desert. What's wrong with this picture? Well, and you're, you're a volunteer. You're there on your own time. And I can tell you uh, directly, uh, Bill, that uh, – uh, in my uh, several positions where I've been uh, in charge of uh, uh, an, a quote-unquote organization that had volunteers, you don't talk to volunteers like that. No, you take care of your volunteers. You give them shirts and jackets, just like we did with ATK, and Kawasaki, and, and Honda. You know, all of those guys know the value of people's time and energy and their money. Well, just to, just imagine, and just like he said to you, Bill, just imagine how his paid employees get handled. I, I he warned me in two thousand and nine. How right. Get that. And we talked about it yesterday. You know, I yep. I wouldn't hire you, Bill, because I'm too hard on my employees. And I just, right. You know. Because I, I can tell you that it, it's my own personal opinion that the reason why Oscar is dead is because uh, Roger probably rode him into the ground. I don't know how Oscar could have survived something like that. You know, exactly. 
you know, teaching teaching the novice promoter how to do things in Mexico. I mean, please. I mean, and having to to interpret and translate all those things. You know, Sal had a little bit of uh, Spanish, you know, Spanish in him, and like Roger, he spent a lot of time down there. But that's forty years, and to come out the first year and try and put on a bar one thousand and kicking all the old people out, the IRCs and the and the veteran. You know, not all the veteran checkpoint workers. Some people just flat left. But um, it's just too onerous. It's not worth the time and effort to try and please the community through Roger Norman. Yeah, I've had two conversations now since Sal has left uh, uh, his organization of SCORE. And uh, he's been flat out with me that he doesn't approve of of the way things are being handled. And he does not believe that that Roger will be around very much longer if he continues to uh, handle people this way and to handle the Mexican uh, government uh, uh, dealings in the way that he has. Well, there were other people that were interested in buying score in 2012, and Roger just simply outbid them. Uh, How much do you know about that? I know a lot about it, but I can't talk about it. I'm sorry I even brought it up, but, you know, it is important to know that that there was other people you know, bidders in the process, and, and Roger simply outbid him. That's that's what I was on. I wasn't in any of the meetings, but that's what I was told by one of the bidders' uh, uh, relatives. You know. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, Bill, I hope you don't mm-hmm. mind, but I'm going to be calling you right after the show so we can talk about that. No problem. Okay, because uh, I understand if you can't talk about it on the show, uh, and it, it is something that ultimately we'll we'll um, uh, have to talk about. Uh, not necessarily on the show, but uh, it's it's important for uh, posterity and and uh, for truthfulness. Uh, so we're at the Reno race. He growls at you uh, over the communications line that he's got with you while you're in the water truck. Yes. I mean, yeah. pu- just am- just amazing. What else happened? I mean, it's just uh, you know when I said you know what, uh, you know, I was I said well here. I go, I got to get my car registered, and then I'll come up. He says, no, just use our office address. I said, okay, Nevada registration. I don't know. Sure. And um, I get up there, and he says, I never said that. So there, I'm crazy because he just, quote, never said that. Well, I'll take a polygraph. Will Roger? No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. He's, he's He's a habitual liar. Right. I've had it happen to me. So go ahead. Uh, so uh, so he he claims he doesn't say one thing. What else happens? Well, not, nothing that he that he said that was reasonable. Like uh, uh, he had a wide open uh, excursions apartment open, and said that I could use it. Um, why was I supposed to come back to his his gated uh, uh, property every night? That's out of the way, and and uh, you know I, it just. I wasn't afraid to go there. I said, what a waste of time. And and what kind of shenanigans are we going to hear about? I'm out here to work. Just tell me what to do. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, it, it was, a, it was a, 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 a huge disappointment. I mean, devastating to me. Um, but I'm glad I went. And I went, you know, I asked about where's King Flippin? Where's, where's all these original, um, HDRA people that you introduced in the, in 2011 at your shop, and uh, he didn't say anything. And then I found out, you know, through other channels that that they had left, and for some personal reasons that were very strong, I guess. 
Well, I talked to uh, internally uh, some SNOR representatives who informed me that uh, they got treated the same way that everybody does. They get promised one thing and delivered another. Right. I imagine that's what it was, and that's what happened to me, too. So why why you would do that to people in general, but why you would do it to uh, – I like to think that I have experience on the hard work. <laughs> I've got a track record that shows that. There's no question, and that's why would you why would you I don't mean to use the term, but I'll just use it just so we can get going here. Why would you bite the hand that feeds uh, feeds you? You know, if I'm up there to help promote a race, or whether it's marking the course or dumping water so that Carlos can dig it out, um, it's because he thinks he can get away with it. Why? I I've never met anybody of his stature stature being financial, um, that has, has treated people like that, except for people that don't have children. I think, it, I think now Sal didn't have children, as I understand. I, I can't recall. But it, it occurred to me several times, and people have mentioned this, is, you know, maybe he thinks that the, the off-road community is his, is his, his, uh, his children, and, and he, he can deal with them for a few hours, and then he has to go away for a while. Well, as a parent, I know this. You can't do that. And you have to have patience, you have to have understanding, and <clears throat> put your foot down when you have to, but you don't need to uh, rip people apart uh, verbally uh, and financially um, just to teach them a lesson. Uh, well, lessons are two, learned. Yeah, there's right. two ways that you can look at human beings, uh, Bill. One is that you uh, can uh, take care of them, and that's people who ultimately, a lot of people who have kids, um, they learn how to do that by having children and being a, being a part of uh, families that have had children. And then there's a, the other type of human being uh, that considers other people as tools. Yeah, I would. I mean, I don't know many people. I suppose that there's a lot of uh, you know, there's a, a new movie coming out about Steve Jobs, but you know. Uh, our family was in the one percent bracket back in the seventies, and there was this this uh, belief that money can buy you uh, lots of options, and it doesn't buy you happiness. Uh, sadly, um, but gratefully, I had to find that out the hard way, and I find it out even today. You know, with our economy, so, um, I'm glad that I went through that experience in 2012, and uh, I'm grateful that it didn't, uh, you know, uh, turn into something where where I got further promises about employment, about being uh, helping with promoting. Um, I think that he and I could have done great things in Mexico. I really what, do. What what ultimately broke it, uh, uh, Bill? So you're up there. You've uh, you know you've been offered that. Uh, 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 a place to stay with the wide open, but what what ultimately happens that you determine that you have to leave? I just had to listen to the people that warned me before going up there, and I called them and I said, "You were right. I thought I was better than that. Don't you know that? That's what my attitude is sometimes. I'll admit it. I think that I can do better than most people in off road racing. If that's a fault, fine." But it, I think it maybe bothered Roger because I would embrace somebody who could competently write, uh, do the paperwork, ah, talk to the you know officials, 
get things going and then make sure that they're tied up at the end so that nothing slips through the cracks. And, uh, you know, I learned that in 25 years of claims adjusting and, and accident scene investigations. You don't leave things hanging uh, that will leave people uh, out in the loop. Now, you know, in 2012, there was a, a national heron hound, an AMA national heron hound, that same week, and the bikes were all scooted up. But by God, there was somebody who actually um, had a helmet cam of the course, and it took them hours to complete one of two loops. Then, they, you know, going on to the second in the heat, I mean, it was just one one um, expert, uh, I think it was a, a 40-year-old expert, uh, John Kearney, taped this. It took him three, four times to get up just one hill. And then with the car race, they had that other, you know, uh, bottleneck where Carlos uh, went straight up the hill. You don't do that. <laughs> you have to do, uh, you know, you have to carve your way side by side and, and work your way slowly up the hill. And he just went straight up and nobody could get up it. And some poor volunteer is out there with his own truck in the heat and he's pulling cars up and, uh, you know, just beating the hell out of his Ford truck. It was it was sad to see. I think it's still up. Well, uh, that I, I could see that uh, occurring because Roger's giving him carte blanche and he has no idea how to do a race. Well, there there have been races and there's been a lot of disappointment. Um, I was particularly affected in 2012 right before score was sold uh, i still believe that the winner of the 2012 score baja 1000 was uh, a team Vildosala, uh, and not not uh, bj baldwin um both ran a great race but when final results were posted and this this leads to roger it really does um i know monster energy with robbie gordon when i was with him in 2009 i, I know how they get on the phone and make calls um, Roger tried to protest Robbie in, in 2009 at the San Felipe 250. I saw that tape. Very well done. Very well done, that investigation. Flying the helicopter, flying the tracks where Robbie went down. So, <laughs> is, it, is it still up there With everybody, no. The, unfortunately, the video is not there. And, and But everybody on Roger's team having party cups uh, doing the investigation. Yeah, talking to the checkpoint. No, no the, the, uh, the 77 hasn't been through here. Nope. Check your records again. Nope, hadn't been through. You know, it was it was a it was a great investigation, and what this leads to though is was monster. Uh, there was a call, and uh, Sal took it, and Robbie went into the command center, and they they didn't do anything, and and he got his second place for that that race. But when it came to the 2012 right. when you post final results, the rules state very very clearly that once final results are posted. There is no protest. And lo and behold, out of cyberspace comes this, I think it was four days after the final results were posted, of a 50-second video of some spectators uh, watching results like get a a light bar adjustment. And and that protest, after the results were, you know, final results were posted, that protest took. So there was two final results in score uh, the 2012 Baja 1000. Uh, I've never seen that before, and I don't know whether how much Sal had to do with that. I know that Oscar really worked, worked hard, but who was the major sponsor the following year once Roger Norman bought score? Monster it was Monster, 
and right. and Sal did make that decision with a with a lot of prodding from uh, from Roger. Probably. I mean, you know, you got to do this because I, I I'm really I promised, I promised, I promised. You know, I could just see that. Oh, big uh, time, big time. But but if if you've got it, you know, some ounces of integrity. I'm not saying that Roger doesn't have any. I, I think there's some there's a lot of good I can say about him, and and I. I be glad to share that there is some really good qualities about it it's the it's the 40 or 30 percent that just appears as an aberration or something and it just throws <laughs> you way way off like you know, right. he said the usa 500 you know the way he treated me and, and i'm sure he's the way he's treated other people a surf rat i mean there there are some people that he has gravely affected with his uh you know spur of the moment no, I've got what I want from you. Now right. go away. I've got what I want. Now go away. Absolutely. No, you know I, I just I have a very good memory, and when it comes to off-road racing, it's really really good. And uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, again, I'll say that during this uh, after the 2013 Sport Bahama with Caselli, he kept the lines of communication open. Um. I sent him several messages, and uh, he, he took them. So uh, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of him for doing that. Uh, that's where it shows that he's not stupid, um, but he is, he's like alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Well, uh, he's he certainly is calculated, though, Bill, because yeah. let's, let's look at this. Uh, I mean, now that we can look back in time, you know, and it's all 2020, uh, it's very important to look back and see that after the Tim Nugent accident, he made a marked uh, decision uh, to uh, leave racing and uh, own a sanction. Well, I, I told him about that was the second issue. He called about Nugent and saying, what kind of liability exposure do I have by putting him right. in my house for six weeks? And I said, just do it. I don't care what a jury is going to say. I don't think there's going to be a jury. When it came to quitting racing, I said it just this way. I'm sure he got a lot of feedback. I said, Roger, if you quit racing, the Mexicans will never respect you. You ran over a guy. I don't. I have no belief that he would do that maliciously. Um, no, had, it wasn't. I don't think it was done maliciously, but it certainly could have been done under circumstances that under a, a normal racing sanction would not be allowed. Or normal and, and, and what I, yeah, what I mean by that is that it's, it's entirely possible that uh, he was uh, under the uh, uh, auspices of uh, medication. Well, he was, he was busting through that. He was, had a, a rear starting position in the trophy truck class and he stormed all the way up to, I think to the, third physical position, I'm sure that a, a pesky motorcycle is getting in his way. And he said that there was dust, and I have to believe him. But what what if that was just another um, uh, statement that might stick to the wall? Regardless, you know, he asked about, you know, the liability aspect. But, but the big part about quitting racing, really over that? Well, he did, you know, uh, we've posted some uh, – uh, stories from back in the day, and he announced that he was no longer going to race SCORE. I mean, he announced this publicly until there was some rule changes by SCORE International. He blamed that situation on the rules. 
Right, he wanted the motorcycles. He came up. He asked us for alternatives. Should we start the bikes a separate day? Right. I said, well, you're going to tax the volunteers two days. Then you're going to you're going to zap them of their resources and energy and time, uh, just because you want the motorcycles to have a separate race on a Saturday or whatever. I'm sorry, a, a Thursday or Friday. And um, but you know, it was his idea. He brought it up. We countered with that. He says, you know, you've only got so much time and resources out there that are available. Um, there's got to be something else. And he came up with this wild idea to start the bikes at 11 o'clock at night. There's never been a Baja race from SCORE, NORA, or the uh, Baja Sports Committee that was the race started at night. You know, the, first, the inaugural race, or the rally um, in 67, yeah, they started them from Tijuana at night. But it was just a, a ceremonial ride to Ensenada to start the race the next day. And, and he, well, he said, and oh, just- no, they started. No, and just to let you know, uh, the this year's Baja 1000, there's a three-and-a-half-hour separation between the uh, four-wheeled starts and the two-wheeled starts. Okay. Well, if it's as rough as a course as you say, yeah, there's going to be some straggling bikes, um, but the bikes should probably take it. Um, you know, uh, who, who's down there? You know, Colton Udall is, is hot, and so is Mark Samuels and all that. The guys on the WFOX uh, Odyssey, they're just sharp. Very, very sharp and well prepared. But who are they racing against? We've got the Kawasaki, I hope. Um, the, I, I've heard nothing about KTM. And it was even, you know, Johnny Campbell really, really embraced Kurt coming down and racing. All the Honda guys did. They said, we need somebody to challenge us. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think the, the Tiger showed his stripes and it scared off uh, KTM for sure. And, and uh, I don't know what Johnny Campbell, why that was just such a, a decision. When, when, when Danny Hamill was killed in 1995, Mark Johnson, the uh, race team manager, he says, no, we're going to go in a whole another year. We've got people that we support on our pits. And uh, so we're going to give them one more year to, to find something else. But we're going to stay dedicated for one more year in memory of Danny Hamill and the people who uh, pit with us, all the, you know, other riders. But Johnny just left, and I, it was sad to see that. Well, I think there was a, a determination at some point in time uh, after the Tim Nugent experience where um, uh, he was going to corner the market and um, uh, control, attempt to control desert off-road racing. And when certain things didn't come into place, uh, he began to focus on the Score International and what it was going to do. And uh, subsequently, what what's transpired in each and every one of these races is that some place in the event, and it could be numerous locations in the event, uh, the, what was first told the, to the racers at the start or uh, at the drivers' meeting uh, changes in between the time of the, the green flag and the finished flag. And that's what's affecting a lot of these experiences. It's one of the main reasons why uh, entries are down. It's not just the cost, but it's also, and I've seen this numerous, numerous times in racers' quotes, they just can't trust Roger Norman. Uh, hello, El Mexicano, the, Mexicano, the, uh, the Mexican newspaper online. Uh, just two days before the Baja 500 this last June, was uh, a couple of ejidos were speaking out about bad faith negotiations with SCORE and Roger Norman, they named him. And uh, what if 
what if that they, they would have just uh, you know closed their fences and said you're not you're not racing? Uh, who's going to come to that risk? You've got an alternate route that you're going to take. I mean, uh, I just don't see how treating the Mexican people, after all, it is their country, not Rogers. Let me say that again. I mean, it's their country. It's their it's their land. It's their roads that they depend on. And if they can't get a $700 here and a $1,200 there, um, then it's going to happen. Well, it's already hap- started happening when Sal Fish was involved, and that was in Baja South, uh, when the uh, Loretto mayor uh, absconded with money that was uh, earmarked to be given to the Ejidos to blade uh, the routes through their Ejido that had been used for the Baja 1000 that were damaged, and they never got fixed. And, in fact, uh, when they tried to go through there even this past uh, uh, race, uh, they were not allowed through because the work still had had not been accomplished. So, uh, Bill, the reason why we're uh, spotlighting this today, and we will do some additional spotlighting, is because this is the main focus of contention now having to do with Baja Racing. It is the personality of Roger Norman. Now, this would be different if it was a sports committee and there were numerous people involved right, and right. different decision-making, but Roger has willfully, intentionally, and will continually make this about him. I mean, he's listed himself as a Baja legend now on the recent Off-Road uh, Expo <laughs> press release. And, and what's going to uh, begin to occur is that the, the bodies will pile up, the issues will pile up, and it all comes from a massive ego that doesn't allow any other decision-making, and if there's any kind of uh, uh, instructions or assistance that is going to be attempted by anybody else having to do with his events, he'll remind you that it's his event. It's not anybody right. else's. It's, and it's and let me give you an example. Yeah, let me give you an example of that, Bill. Uh, yeah. When I asked uh, Roger in an interview uh, uh, what happened with the um, uh, the committee that oversees uh, race events, uh, as far as con- you know, uh, contest results, uh, uh, you know, any kind of uh, contention with uh, uh, race results, he said, Th- "That is me. There's no committee. There's no representatives of classes. He is the ultimate unified, unilateral one decision maker, and it's Roger Norman." That's too much responsibility to put on any human's uh, shoulders, let alone putting it on yourself. In my opinion, that's just my opinion, and I'm I'm saying that tongue in cheek. It seems to me that if you if your only media source, if your only tracking source is not through third parties that are com- you know competing uh, to do the best job, then that kind of flies in the face of, of Rogers. You know, um, well maybe not his ethics about. About uh, being a businessman and whatnot. It's, exactly. It's that's that's the point, Bill. You're you're onto it now. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, you know, mainstream media versus uh, social media. I mean, we have we know the truth about certain things, and then we uh, know what we're told. And I don't trust a one source Soviet Union style uh, or Chinese style message. I just don't trust it. I want to know what you think. Their Baja Racing News and Baja Safari Blog because you guys 
documents and back it up. You well, guys have pretty, you, I like this thing. I'm going to say this. You, you guys down there at Baja Racing News and Baja Support, you ain't pretty, but you sure, sure are sexy. You've got your stuff. It's, it's packed away. You've got to look for it. But at least it's there. And it, and it reaches <laughs> just, just the outside of the, um, the box, and it needs to be there. And and people say, oh, you know, they're they're dangerous or they're whatever they're they're, they're uh, unpredictable. Um, well, I have faith in you guys. You treated me just fairly, and and uh, maybe it's because I'm I'm being as honest as I can, and 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 looking at things like if I ever had to take a polygraph, then I'll do it. Would would other people? No. Um, so maybe I'm boring, uh, or maybe people are looking for excitement. But to me, that there's no. There's no value in having a one-source media. I mean, my God, Rob, Robbie Gordon was, was interviewed on Dirt Live one time. I don't know if you ever saw that broadcast. I wonder if it's still up. It lasted a whole five minutes. That's not a oh. lot of time. Oh, hey, hey, uh, Bill, you bring up a, a very excellent topic. There were lots of things that went on Dirt Live that uh, lasted only a couple of minutes. One of them was, remember the San Felipe race that was affected by the storm? Uh, B, BJ and BJ Baldwin was heavily uh, 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 not only criticized by Score, but then he uh, also was penalized. Uh, he said on uh, George's show that uh, Roger had screwed that up royally, and that that didn't last. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't on tape anymore, available to the public. Well, I got a screenshot of Robbie just and said, "No, we never interviewed him because I, I got I got used to that." And and you know, I also got a transcript. But you know, Robbie was very straight with Roger when he's tried to go sideways on him. He supports the bikes. This is after the Caselli uh, death. And he says, I support the bikes. I think that there's ways we can work work with them. And uh, that was music to my ears uh, on behalf of the bike people. Um, what are we called? Pussies? Yeah, it's pussies. Yeah, it's, that's what the... Well, let me, let me be as absolutely clear as I possibly can on that. When I was interviewing Roger about that issue, when a Pistolero put a gun up to a guy's nose and he said, I'm, give me your bike. Oh, and he yeah, took, Mike Baxter. And he took the guy's bike. Uh, Roger just flat out not only said that, but here's what he said. He said, if, if a guy is not prepared to come to Mexico and lose everything, then he shouldn't be down here. Wow. Can I get that in writing? I oh, I, I'm Roger put that. No, I'm telling me. you, I'm telling you right now. The attitude that I got in that interview was clearly uh, something that had uh, bubbled up from all the time that he had to talk to these people about this particular issue because it was it was not right at the point in time that it occurred. It was several weeks down after, you know, we had gotten the story. We found out the nature of the people involved. We found out that that team that was involved in that, that individual that was involved in the five, or I, I, I won't mention any uh, team names, but they were, but, uh, but, but they were associated, you know, the, the guy who stole the bike. Yeah. He was associated with a team, correct? Right. Okay, that team was uh, labeled uh, a, a group of malcreants uh, because they were involved in uh, uh, the the team that the guy died on the on the race course. All 
I know all new new biker new exactly exactly and and his shenanigans bringing uh, uh, women into Baja California uh, for his own uh, uh, particular purposes. Well, no, nobody's a saint, that's for sure. I'm not, uh, but I'd sure like to keep that kind of stuff from happening, uh, which will put a, a pall on, on the whole community of operating people. Um, there's nobody's uh, clean as a whistle. Some people think they are. Uh, there's some employees of Rogers who one said they're perfect or that he's perfect, and there is no <laughs> such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a perfect person. Because that one person is is not uh, visible to us. We pray to that person for the right uh, ideas. And when you have a big ego, the acronym in ego is edging God out. Edging God out and replacing it with self. And uh, left to our own devices, we can can, uh, really screw up uh, our lives and the lives around us. Uh, Bill, you're a wise sage. And uh, some people don't appreciate that, and and we certainly do over here at Off Road Live. And by the way, I do want to say thanks for the the kind words. We do appreciate it. Um, the the one thing that uh, I want to be clear about with any of the interviews that I've ever done with Roger Norman, the reason why we did do the interviews originally, uh, because they weren't interviews. Ultimately, Roger was trying to get us to remove uh, content from the website. That's when he made first contact with us. Uh, he worked with us uh, long and hard on removing the content having to do with Tim Nugent. Well, I can just say this to Roger. Roger, thank you for the experiences, opening the doors so that I, you know, without him, I I don't think uh, El Factor Off-Road have ever stuck a microphone in my hand and said, here, do the, do the, be the reporter for Channel 66. That that wouldn't have happened uh, if, if I hadn't gone and, and been a part of the, you know, outer crowd, I guess. Um, and I'm grateful for the times when I'd call just with a problem. I never asked for anything except for a prayer, and somehow things would get better. There are some very good things about every human being, and including Roger, and I would just say thank you for the experiences. I, I'm so sorry that uh, it's such a, a hard effort, it's such a hard task to relinquish some responsibility and allow people who have the best interest in the community at hand, let them make decisions. And if there's a mistake done, then we learn from it. But I, I'm warning any promoter out there, you, you run everything on your own time. If you've got the time and if you have the, the staff around you, you can do anything. But nobody does it just by themselves. Uh, from, from the top down, you know, if all you're getting is uh, the bark coming off the tree, uh, you, you've got to replace that. You've got to protect yourself, backup and redundancy. And you've got to have all these things in communication insurance, all these things that we don't want to touch, those are the most important. Including well, Bill, I know, water on the access road. Yes, sir. Bill, I know that we have a, um, uh, a limit as far as total time with you today, so let me do this. Uh, uh, I'm going to recontact you. We'll do a special this week. Uh, I'd like to talk about the upcoming Baja 1000. Uh, we'll have you back on for next Monday, and we'll go on to brand new topics. Uh, right. But and yeah, and then uh, but I do want to express our gratitude that your expertise is available to us, and that uh, 
Uh, we're looking forward to working with you in the future, uh, and we we do appreciate your uh, positive philosophical uh, perspective uh, on uh, this sport and the people involved in it. Thank you so much for calling in. You're welcome. Uh, well, uh, I'll give you a jingle on the uh, on the flip side, Bill. Uh, t- take care. Have a good day. You bet. Thank you. Folks, stay tuned. This is Off-Road Live. We'll go on to news headlines next.
Off-Road Live. Every Monday, 4 p.m. West, 7 p.m. East, we are live now in the Desert Tower Studios. We refuse to say that summer is over. We're still going to be on the beach at some point. But uh, at this very moment, uh, we're in the Desert Tower Studios in the Big Bad Desert, back from the Off-Road Expo, where the uh, Baja 1000, the king of Baja 1000 race course was uh, made public, not too far from what uh, we knew was being uh, surmised, uh, which we did several months ago. And then, of course, the uh, 2016 score uh, schedule of events uh, also was released, and that was exactly as was predicted by Baja Racing News. Of course, after numerous uh, test balloons sent off by uh, Score International, except for one thing, they didn't expect that uh, uh, Off-Road Live and yours truly would be calling the uh, county supervisors of the uh, County of Imperial and letting them know that Roger was bailing. Splitting town, grabbing the cash, and getting the hell out of Dodge. He didn't expect that, I don't think. And I don't think he also expected for us to conduct wide-ranging interviews like we did and let people know, people that were on the hook, people that did things for Roger that they never expected Roger would just not even tell them that he was leaving. Well, now they know Roger Norman now, right? They know who this guy is as a person. They do now. Because the Imperial Valley 250, that was the last one. A couple weeks ago, that was the last one. Last Imperial Valley 250. Uh, Also at Off-Road Expo, as mentioned by our Off-Road specialist, our recreation specialist, John Stewart. A great time had by all, lots of different new products. Always very interesting event. And we were live from Off-Road Expo uh, Friday and Saturday. And, of course, we're looking forward to SEMA, which will also be attending and providing live coverage for you, the Desert Off-Road Racing fan. will be live from SEMA this year. And, of course, uh, it's already been uh, uh, noticed and talked about that uh, part of the plans for this year's Bio 1000 is that there's going to be qualifying again at Vegas at SEMA. We'll bring that to you live. And we'll also bring to you live uh, interviews and perspectives from uh, people uh, not completely involved in desert off-road racing, but those who have an influence in it uh, in the specialties and equipment market, uh, as well as uh, uh, other markets that are uh, – present at SEMA, I think you'll be very interested to hear um, how some of the market players, manufacturers, producers, retailers, distributors, uh, feel about desert off-road racing. Very interesting perspective. We got a little bit of it last year, and we'll bring much more to you this year. For everyone at Off-Road Live, including the Baja crew, our friends, Ram Trucks, Hard Rock, Marlboro, Budweiser, Red Bull, and BajaSafari.com, the king of Baja. This is Monster Mike signing off. Until next week, here 
on Off Road Live. <laughs>